once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. The old Calvin and Hobbes comic strip featured a game called Calvin Ball. The game is never played with the same rules twice. Other than that, the rules are made up as you go along. As much as we may hate rules, and like Calvin, love the idea of life without them, they do play a key role. Lead teacher Randy Pope finishes the series The Ticket, Imputed Righteousness, with this message entitled The Law, Our Friend, But Inept to Save, which covers Romans chapter 5, verses 13 through 17, 20, and 21. Thank you for joining us today. Now we're in a very difficult series. As many of you have heard, we have all kinds of series, topical on different things, text series. We go through various portions of scripture. And this is a thing that I do on a regular basis, believing that the book of Romans is the single most important book of the Bible for Christians to learn and understand. And for those who are seekers, seeking to understand the faith of Christendom, to be able to read and get all that you really need. It is the treatise of all treatises. It's called the, the great pearl of the Bible. But there are portions of the book of Romans that are very complex and somewhat hard to understand. And we're in some of the most difficult now. But don't let that throw you. Usually where you mine the deepest, you get the greatest reward. And this stuff is outstanding. So every year I take a little portion of Romans and I go back through it. I've done that now for 38 years. Just keep going through it little bit by little bit. And this text is a jewel, but it's not one you would recognize till we dig into it. So let's pray and let's ask God to bless our time. Father, we pray that you would allow us to have understanding of this important text. It's complex as it is. I pray that uh, you would give me the ability to make it simple and very applicable to all of our lives. And so we ask you to bless our time and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 5. If you do not, we'll have it on the screen. You have it, the text, the primary text, on the back of your outline. So feel free to look inside your bulletin to, uh, to get that. It's been a two-month uh, two series, and the heart of this series, of this text that we're looking at in Romans chapter 320 through chapter 5, is about a subject that we have called, and it's called in Scripture, imputed righteousness. So we always want to keep in contrast our goodness, our human goodness, and the righteousness of Christ, and follow this, that is imputed to people which makes them acceptable to God. You understand that? Most of us tend to think, we all grow up thinking this way, and it's sometimes hard to get rid of this thinking, even as true followers of Jesus, that really it has to do with how good I obey God's teachings. We call his teachings the law. Paul is going to be bringing up, the author of this text, is bringing up this idea of the law and its role. And he's writing to a Jewish people who think that the role of the law is to be a measuring stick that if you qualified by keeping the law enough, then God would accept you through all eternity. That was the Jewish people's mindset. They believed in keeping the law. The law was the great gift to the Jewish people. And through the law, 
We find our righteousness. That was their belief. And believing that, Paul is now trying to cut away at that. And so he's, he's been teaching us a number of things. Number one, that our only hope is this imputed righteousness. Then he talks, secondly, about this righteousness being a gift of God. A gift is something you don't earn. You simply receive it. A gift. Thank you. Then he teaches that this gift that we receive called imputed righteousness, the righteousness of Christ given to us so that we are seen as righteous by God, even though we still sin, but he sees us as righteous. He goes on to say, by the way, this gift is received by faith. So we talked for a few weeks about this thing called faith. Faith is like a muscle. You got to build it and you put trust in what God says And you begin to step out in belief of what he says, and the faith muscle begins to grow. But he says that's how you begin, and that's how you continue as a Christian. It is by faith. Then last week, we entered into this very challenging concept. I used the nickname corporate personality to try to help us understand that God looks at us as a people meaning as a human race, and he deals with us as a human race. All of Scripture teaches that. I went into that in great detail. And that there is a representative system that God is using for our own salvation that has been true of all mankind forever. Now, the Jewish people said, oh, no, 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 no. I don't buy, we don't buy this stuff. We, we are a people of Israel, Jewish people, and therefore we're made right by the law of God, and we can be made right. And Paul's going to argue, say, we got a little problem here, and here's the problem. The representative system has always been in effect, and if that be the case, then you're going to learn something that's going to change your mind, Jewish people, and even us today. Because what he's going to say is this. Adam, the first of human creation, represented all humanity. And we see what happened to humanity. And now, in an equal way, Jesus is representing all of his family. Now, I taught that in great detail, tried to explain it, gave illustrations and all. I can't go back over that. But because this text is going to pick up on that same truth, I want you to keep in mind, that's what we mean, if you're new with us, by representation. Adam represented the human family. Jesus represents God's family within the human family. Whatever was true of Adam is true of the human race, and rightly so. And we argued a pretty convincing argument last week that most people didn't really understand until last week. But it literally is this representation And now Jesus is called the second Adam, and he's going to represent all of his people. So that hopefully brings you kind of up to where we are today, if you're new with us in the series. Now, he's going to clean up a few last issues before he moves into chapter 6, which he's going to change the whole direction of what he's talking about. But in these last verses that we have in chapter 5, he's going to deal with two basic arguments that have been leveled against the idea of imputed righteousness. Here's one of them. They would say, hey, this imputed righteousness could not be God's historic plan for redeeming or saving or taking his people to be his own. It can't be. Because 
before the law, listen to this, they believed there was no sin. Before the law, they thought there was no sin. Meaning before Moses gave the Ten Commandments, then if there's no law, there can be no sin. Law was given, secondly, they said that law was given to make people righteous. Why do we need Jesus? The law is good enough. And that's what he's trying to argue in these texts. Now, questions for me as I'm looking at this text, all right, he's talking to a Jewish people. How many of us here are Jewish? Maybe a few, but not many. Do we struggle with this idea of the law being the way of salvation? No, most of you say, no, I'm past that a long time ago. Don't be surprised how much you're going to see this rooted in our own experiences that are impacting our life. So hang in there. Let's see where it takes us, okay? Paul's going to be teaching three things to us in this text. I, love, I like the title that I've chosen because I think it tells the story, the law, and then I say our friend. The law, our friend, yet inept, meaning not able to save, but still our friend. So let's look what he says. Number one of three teachings. Sin can be present without the existence of the law, and I'd rather maybe put it this way now. Sin is present. When I use the term can be, I'm saying that he's arguing that it can be, but the reality is his argument is sin is present always, even without the existence of the law. And so let's read verses 13 and 14. He says, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. I know this is not going to be real clear as you read it, but follow. Back it up one uh, again. Notice this word imputed. In a minute I'll explain. This is not used in the same way. It's not the same word that's used when we talk about imputed righteousness. That's confusing. So it's a different use of that word. Now let's go to verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam, the first human, until Moses, the giver of the law. Even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, confusing, who is a type of him, meaning Christ, who was to come. Now let me try to make that as clear as possible. The, uh, the Jewish people denied that you could break the law if there is no law. They say, wait, 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 how do you say we break the law? We're in this bad problem of sin because we break the law when there is no law. And at one point, there was no law. And then the text reads, for until the law, sin was in the world. So Paul is making it clear, no, no, no. Sin was in the world before Moses gave that law. The next verse, he says, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Now here, this word imputed means not recorded. It is not recorded in the ledger. Or another way it's translated is not taking into account. And so it sounds like he's saying, oh, wait, no, it sounds like he's saying no law, no sin. Here's how I put it. I'm going to put it up this way. It's really saying though there is sin, it is not defined as a transgression of the law given through Moses. Oh, yeah, it's not breaking one of the commandments because there were no commandments. But sin, nevertheless, was there. What he is doing here 
as he is not ignoring or dismissing the law, he's just showing the proper function of the law. And so this is what he says next. He says, those who have not sinned in the likeness of Adam's offense. This is what I wrote to that. I won't put it up, but it says, it probably means didn't sin against the defined law, but only against the law in their hearts. Now, understand this. Here's the big teaching. This is simple. What he's saying is this. Jewish people, they say, oh, it can't be sin because there's no law. And you're saying we're all sin, and from Adam we've been sin. No, it can't be because there's been no law to break, therefore there's no sin. He said, no, 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 no. What you're missing is this. You're talking about the law of Moses. Oh, yeah, we couldn't break the law of Moses, meaning the exact ten things that he wrote. But we have a law written on our what? Hearts. You tell me. Young people, you don't have to have ever read the Bible. You tell me, how many of us know when we've done wrong, we've done wrong? You take something from somebody and there's something inside that says, "Uh uh-oh, I don't think I should have done that. Now, that can be hardened over a period of time where it doesn't bother you, but initially, oh, man, I know. You take somebody's life, nobody's going to say, even though they hadn't heard a law, they're going to know, I shouldn't have done that. That was wrong. And because God has taught elsewhere in the Scripture, he has put the law on our hearts at creation. With me? So understand, that's all he's saying. The law is on the heart, and it always has been. Therefore, we do violate the law of the heart. And once the law of Moses came, we violate also the law of Moses. Therefore, what are we going to do having broken the law when God says, if you break the law... You must die. And death there means separation from God. So how many of us here would say, I'm perfect. I've never done anything wrong. I've never violated anything that would keep me from perfection. No, we all go. You know, I meet with people all the time over lunch. Just over and over, I meet with guys over lunch. I have yet to meet one person, and I've met with thousands of men. I've yet to meet one man. Whatever his belief or lack of belief, whatever he thought religiously or whether he had any religion or not, I've never heard anybody say, I'm perfect, I've never done wrong. You believe in the Bible? No. Well, where's your standard of right and wrong? I don't know, but I know I've done wrong. How can you do wrong if you don't have a standard of right and wrong? I don't know, but I know I've done wrong. I've never heard anybody say, I'm perfect. Done everything just right. No. We know something is wrong. That is the basic teaching of the text. And when it says, and Adam was a type of Jesus or Christ, he's saying he is modeling what Christ is going to do for us. He represents humanity. Jesus represents his people, right? That is point one. All right, let's go to number two. There's much to be learned about the wonder of God's grace by contrasting the free gift resulting from Christ's death and the judgment resulting from Adam's sin. So now we pick up at verses 15 through 17. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, that's Adam, the many died, meaning mankind, much more, and that's a term of contrast, much more, Did the grace of God 
and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many, meaning all of those who become his people. Now, to help you understand this, this uh, is basically showing a contrast that we might kind of see the two side by side. First of all, and have this in your bulletin, there is the contrast of motive. So let's put it up. First of all, there's Adam's deed. Adam's deed was one of self-will. But look at Jesus' deed. Christ's deed is one of self-sacrifice. He's also contrasting effect, not just motive. What's the contrast of effect? The effect of Adam's deed is condemnation and death to all people. What about Jesus? The effect of his deed is justification, being declared right with God, and life. All right? So there is the primary contrast. Now, let's be very practical. People often ask me, if God knows everything and God can do everything, why does God let sin in this world? Now, honestly, have we not all asked that question ourselves? Let's assume to you Christians, somebody walks up to you and says, you're a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. You really a Christian? Yeah, I'm really a Christian. You believe the Bible? Yeah, I believe the Bible. Do you know the Bible? Yeah, pretty good, but maybe not great, but okay. Then tell me this. If God is so powerful, he can do all things, and if he knows all things, why do you let sin into the world? You tell me, what are you going to say? I bet you don't want me to call you up here and ask you, do you? No. Because Christians are going, oh, I don't know, I'm not really sure. Let me tell you, friend, if you can't answer that question, well, you, you need to. Let me give you the answer right now. This text somewhat deals with it. The reason that, the reason that Christ's work was so important, people think that, well, Jesus came along and brought us back to where the fall, pre-fall was. Now, it took Adam and Eve, they sinned, and now it puts us like them back as if they'd never sinned. That'd be a good thing. But folks, that's not what this does. You've got to understand this contrast. The reality is this. It is much, 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 much better than just taking a sinful people and, again, making them non-sinful. Because what is happening here is, in Adam, while we're a fallen people, and before, I'm sorry, Adam and Eve, before they sinned, if you took them, they were what would be called in the image of God, right? You understand that? We're in the likeness of God by the fact we're created in his image. So they would still be in his image, but they would not be what we call in Christ, in relationship with Christ. Far different, far better. Had there been no sin, oh, Adam and Eve and everybody else would be part of the human family. They'd still be part of the human family. That would be a good thing. And they'd be part of the human family without sin. But because we have sinned, and the sin has been dealt with by Jesus, we are now made members of the family of Jesus, which we would not have been. We would not have been what are called uh, 
brothers and sisters of Jesus, as we call it. There wouldn't be. There wouldn't be the familial thing. There would not be the relational thing as we have it. Oh, without sin, yeah. But not in the family of God. Take it another step. Do you realize had there never been sin ever? Do you know what would have happened is we as a people would be a people who were, were on probation until we did sin. No great way to live. But because there has been sin that's been dealt with, we are now accepted by God forever. You want to know why? Was it really good that it ended up that we sinned and then had the opportunity to be made right with God? We're put in a far better position than we would have ever been had we not sinned. Now we'll take it a step further. Follow this logic. Let's imagine, let's imagine that man had never sinned and every person goes to heaven forever. All right? We're all in heaven together. Would we know God to be a God of power, yes or no? Yes or no? Yes? Would we, na- would we know God as a God of, of uh, a creative genius, yes or no? Yeah? Would we know him as all-knowing? Yes, and I can keep on the list. But let me ask you this. Would we know God as a forgiving God, yes or no? No. Wouldn't know him as a forgiving God. Would we know him as a God of mercy, yes or no? No. Mercy, God not giving us what we do deserve. Would we know him as a God of grace, God giving us what we don't deserve? No. All right, now, let's take those two scenarios. Let's say that somebody that you know is the most brilliant, the most wise, the most talented, gifted, amazing person you've ever met. Would you give them glory? Yeah. Best athlete in the world, you'd give it, oh, wow, I was with so-and-so. Michael Jordan, he was basketball. Did you see Tiger Woods? Everybody would be, oh, wow, 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 glory, glory, glory. Look at how great they are. Yeah, we give them glory. Tell me this. If that same person had not only accomplished all that they are and have, but had done something for you that was so amazing that they gave themselves, their loved one, their life, whatever, and were all of those things, were gracious, forgiving, Man, think of the glory that you would give to that person. Do you understand that God does all things for his own glory? No sin, glory. Sin and redemption, great glory. Even from our human perspective, we can come up with an answer and say, I could see why God would allow sin in this world. He didn't cause us to sin, but he allowed it. And we allowed it, he then redeemed us so that now he gets glory and we get put in a better position. God wins and we win. You follow? There's one third truth that we need to look at. And that truth is this. The law was given to show us our need for grace. 
Many of us need to understand this. Let's look at verse 20 to begin with. Verse 20 said, the law came, came in so that the transgression or sin would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, I often hear this. Why all the rules and regulations? The Bible law is Christianity. You can't, must, don't, you must, blah, blah, blah. I always hear that. First of all, a simple answer to that. It's to protect us. You understand this? Do you know that every law in the Bible, you cannot find one that does not meet one of these three descriptions. It's given either to protect us from other people or number two, to protect other people from us or listen to this one, often to protect us from us. You with me? To protect us from us. But more importantly, what our text says, that transgression might increase. And that word increase means to be augmented. Look at Galatians 3.19. Why the law then? And this is the same author, Paul. He's answering the same question. Well, then why the law? It was added because of transgressions or sins, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. And that's Jesus. And so here he's saying the same thing. It's so that sin would increase. Now he's talking about the knowledge of sin and the conviction of sin. You follow that? Simple. Put it simple. Why sin? I mean, why the law? Why the law? Answer, so that we would see the sin that is in us. I like to think of a, of a bright sunny day and maybe you're, uh, you're in the house and you, you raise the shade or the blinds and all of a sudden you've had these times where you see thousands of little tiny particles in the air, the bright light, and you say, wow. Did those things just show up when the light came on? No. They were always there. Close that shade, you don't see them. Same way with our sin. We got sin all over our life. We don't see it. We can look hard for it. I don't see it. And then the light of the law comes along and we go, oh my goodness, look at my heart. Look how sinful it is. How am I going to deal with that sin? Jewish people said, keep the law, work hard, be better. Jesus comes along and says, no, no, no. You come into my family, and I will make you better. I will impute my righteousness on you, and you'll be accepted in my family. And I will love you as your God the Father as much as I love your Savior, God the Son. Can you believe that? And we still keep sinning, and he keeps turning the head to that sin, saying it's been dealt with by my cross. I've already paid for that. I've already paid for that. Uh, please don't jump to conclusions. Okay, I can live any way I want to live now, do anything I want to do. No, that shows you're not really in love with him. When you come into his family, it's because you've fallen into love. And when you love someone, you don't want to hurt them. You want to, you want to come to their aid and help and serve and, in this case, bring glory to him. That's the indication of a real Christian. So, very important to understand the reasons that God has given us the law. He's not trying to make us sin. He's helping us to actually see it. Now it says in our text in uh, 
Romans 5.21. Let's go to Romans 5.21. This wraps up the very end. It says, so that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace would reign. I love this. Grace would reign through righteousness. To what? To eternal life, beginning now, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now let me, one last time before we get out of Romans, let me explain this law and grace. Make sure you get this. If you've never been here before, this might help you a lot. We have law, the law of Moses. We have grace, what God does for us that we don't deserve. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. Law versus grace. The Bible pits the two together in only one way. Salvation by law versus salvation by grace. You with me? No, it is not ever, never has been, never will be, salvation by law. Always has been salvation by grace. So people have concluded as Christians, for some reason, the Old Testament, it's all about law, and the New Testament's all about grace. No, it's not. The Old Testament is about law and grace. I can show you throughout the whole Old Testament. It's law and grace. New Testament is about law and grace. You hear that? It's important to know. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, non-believers, everyone outside being a real Christian in the family of God, represented by Jesus, all people are under the law, meaning they must keep the law perfectly. Can't do it. That's what's called being under the law. Everybody in the Old Testament and New Testament who are true believers, they're under grace in the Old Testament and they're under grace in the New Testament. Do you follow that? Please don't make it Old Testament law, New Testament grace. No. It's Old and New Testament law meaning under the law, under its demands for the non-believer. But for the Christian, Old and New Testament, under grace, forgiven by the work of Christ. The Old Testament people had to look to the coming of Jesus and put their faith in his grace, remember, in his work, what he's going to do on the cross. People of the New Testament, they have to, other way for you guys, I'm looking at me, but coming the other way, they have to, we, we look back historically and we're able to say, ah, oh, we have a, a risen Jesus. And, and we know he did what he claimed he'd do because he rose from the dead. So don't confuse that law and grace. And as Christians, love the law. Even as the psalmist said, oh, how I love thy law. It's my meditation day and night. And I'm watching a movement of young people that's making the law to be a very bad thing. And they're losing the glory and the beauty of what God intended it to be. Let me say this. You ever heard of the three usages of the law? You ought to note this. If you're a note taker, if you're not, don't worry. You know, but you'll forget it. Anyway, three uses of the law. Need to know this. The first use of the law is to be a mirror. And that's what, that's what we were talking about a while ago. The, that's what shows us ourself. It's the light that shows us the sin in our life. Number two, it is, it is to restrain evil. 
That's why our country has laws to keep people from doing bad things to us and so forth, us doing bad things to other people. But don't forget the third use of the law. It reveals what is pleasing to God. That's why we love it. You know, I, I wish I knew Carol, my wife, better than I knew her. You know why? Not, not because I can figure out what's going to make her mad. I'd like to know her better, and I am getting to know her better every year of our life because I learn what it is that literally brings her pleasure. And the more I can learn what brings her pleasure, the more I would like to do that well for one reason only, not that she'll do this for me or that for me, but because I love her that much. And that's what happens in a true love relationship. Christians who say, get rid of that law, get rid of that law, exist to say, I don't want to know what pleases you, God. I want to know what pleases me. Be very careful to that. I have two implications in your text there, just to comment on it. Those who, those who receive God's gift of righteousness reign in life. That's a good thing to know. Um, that's our verse 17. We've already walked through that text in Romans 5. Uh, that's saying here and now we reign with Christ. Um, Ephesians 2, I won't go in that text, but in Ephesians 2 it says that we are seated right now with Christ in the heavenly places. It's a figurative term, uh, expression to simply say we are now in our reign with Jesus. So what are you asking me? What difference does that make to me now? Here's the difference. Makes a difference in your self-esteem. You ever been around very, very, very successful, very, very, very attractive, very, very, very whatever you're not? And how do you feel? Ooh. I love golf. Didn't used to. Do now. But I, but I love golf. And so they had the, the seniors tournament here and they asked if I'd do the devotion for the, for the when I was the, the chaplain to the ATP tennis tour, uh, I got to know the chaplain to the golf tour. And so uh, we reconnected recently and said, hey, would you teach the study for our players after the, during the tournament on Friday night here in Atlanta? And they had over at Sugarloaf. I said, sure. So I'm out with all these and here's a room full. I, I came home and I said, Carol, I bet you there were 25 major trophies represented in that room of majors in the, uh, at least that. That is just the who's who of golfers. I went back this week and they asked me to come back for their, they have a major over in Birmingham, so I went over Friday for that, Friday night, and uh, to that uh, tournament. And I was with the, I mean, these are the people that, when I look as a golfer, I go, ooh, look at me and look at you. Look at your, look how famous you are. Look how rich you are. You know what? As a Christian, that doesn't affect you. You know why? I look at some of those guys and they're not even believers. And I'm thinking, you don't even reign with Christ. And some of them as believers, I say, you're just a brother of my equal. You reign with Christ. Do you know the good news is you don't have any sense of pride because you always remember, I reign with Christ because of what he's done for me. I'll also do a wonderful thing for you 
when you get rejected for your faith. And I want to say this to our young people. If you're here, I want you to hear this. One of the most important things for you is for you to be able to walk into your school, to walk in among your peers, and be able to say in your heart, I reign in life. And you can look at them and say, there's nobody in this room that reigns more in life than I reign. You may reign equally with me, but I reign in life because of the goodness of our God. You know what? Self-esteem, way high. Because you have the best of the best of the best. They have good. You have great. It'll change the way you view yourself among other people. Very important to know that. The last implication After receiving God's gift of righteousness, the reign of grace can never be discontinued. It can never be discontinued. Verses 20 and 21 of Romans 5. The law came, and so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. 21, so that as sin reigned in life, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life. It's forever deal. The point is this. Once you're a Christian... Once you reign, you reign forever. Once a Christian, always a Christian. So let me close. Series has now come to an end. We've talked about a lot of things. My question would be this. Why wouldn't you want, as a Christian, why wouldn't you want to keep staring constantly at the realities of that grace in which we stand. Do you remember that? The circle of grace. We're called into grace. And when you get called out of the world into this grace in which we stand, Romans 5, 1 and 2, when you step into that realm of grace, you begin to exult. You exult in the hope of the glory of God You exalt in God himself. And you remember the third one? We exalt in our tribulations. How do you do that? Because you keep looking down at the grace in which you stand. And that's when you get what's called the peace of God that passes human comprehension. That's how some of us as Christians who've been Christians a while can walk through very hard times and though be very pained by it, can still exalt. Keep your eyes fixed on the grace in which you stand. Why wouldn't you do that? As opposed to looking out and say, oh, if I had that, if I get this, and if I accomplish that, if I do this, and then, boy, look what the world will think of me, and look how well I'll do it, and look how much. And I say, are you kidding me? That's all you get? No. And you go through tribulation, you lose your spouse, you lose your child, you go through, you lose your health, and everything falls apart, and you say, oh, it's my life, what am I going to do now? Say, why would you want that? And that's why I say to you that are seekers, you're seeking to understand a relationship with God, you keep seeking. You keep looking at the truth of God's word. You keep exposing yourself to God's people and God's word. And watch what happens. You'll begin to see and sniff out that that circle of grace, and you'll see it. It'll become attractive. And next thing you know, you'll step into it. And then you'll struggle looking out, looking out, looking out, and you don't have the peace of God. You have peace with God forever, but you don't have the peace of God. And then, as many of us are trying to learn right now to keep our eyes fixed on the grace in which we stand, and we start experiencing this peace of God that passes human comprehension. Why wouldn't we do that?
Why wouldn't we do it? Go to the cross. Look at what Jesus has done. Always look what he's done for us. Don't look what you do for God. And you see the cross. And if I'm not a Christian, say, God, I want to know you. I want your work applied to me so that I can be forgiven. If you're a Christian, go to the cross. And you see the cross. And you say, Lord, I see what you've done for me and I've experienced it. And that's causing me to fall more in love with you, which causes me to want to keep the beauty of your law. As we pray together, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for a a series of your book here of Romans, and we pray that as a result of walking through it and trying to digest it and learn a little bit of it now and a little bit more later, I pray that we would fall in love with you. If never before, we would be introduced to you and step into that grace forever and ever. And Lord, if we're in that circle of grace right now, as so many of us are, I pray God cause us to keep exalting in you and the hope of your glory. And even in our tribulations, allow us to exalt that we might enjoy the great peace that you give to us as a result. But more important, that you would be honored. Cause us to be law keepers, not in order to gain your favor, but because we have gained your favor. Grant that we pray, and we thank you for all. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.